All right, everyone. It's me, Brahm. Welcome back to the podcast. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about something a little bit different. Obviously, normally this podcast is about psychedelics, but today we're going to be talking about something that is just as trippy, uh, which is AI, more specifically, the future of AI and how to align AI and make sure that it is safe and uh, responsible. So today's guest to talk about that is my good friend, Ramsey Brown. Ramsey is a neuroscientist, and he is the founder of... Um, the AI Responsibility Lab, which is a company that builds venture-scale deep tech solutions for AI safety and AI resilience. Ramsey, thanks for coming on the podcast, bro. Brom, thanks for <laughs> having me. It. Yeah, thanks for um, having me. It's a joy to be here. I've got a million questions, but first of all, like, how does one become a guy who is running a company focused on AI responsibility and AI alignment? Um, what's the backstory? I started off in computational neuroscience uh, at USC. And I suppose way, way even before that, I've always had this obsession with this thing that lived at the intersection of brains, minds, and machines as a guiding principle for my life. Just this always seemed like the thing I wanted to grow up and work on. Um, my, my family was in tech during like the first dot-com wave, so I grew up you know, programming computers and and I was that guy you'd go to to like see if you couldn't get around the code in Neopets to get more like shit from free. Right. Um, and... <laughs> It's like way back in the day and running that forward, I realized that this thing that existed at like flourishing as a, a, a goal for human civilization and technology and the future of our relationship to it would largely be focused on intelligence and not just how to think about human intelligence from my background in neuroscience, but to think about how intelligence writ large works. Because when you, when you think about intelligence as the more abstract concept, you're talking then about how things think of which we are one of the thinking things. Um, that led to building some startups and some companies, uh, dropping out of my PhD program at USC to run that full time, building and selling those. And I had a, a moment of clarity. I got invited to speak at a NATO summit in Latvia uh, a bunch of years back as a, a keynote speaker on a, a panel of, of do humans have free will in an age of artificial intelligence? And that to me was uh, what I look back on as a big wake up call. It, it's really easy in the forest for the weeds part to talk about, oh yeah, you know, it's really hard to, to make sure that your model trains properly, or you know, you got to think about uh, costs here, or um, you know, is your step function proper for, for getting the gradient descent? And like, there's a, a very like in the weeds version of all of this that loses the force for the trees for the civilization and society level implications of what it means to live in a world alongside machines that can think. And where a lot of people would say that we are very far away from that, I take the perspective that we are frighteningly close to it and largely blind to its velocity because humans are miserable at judging acceleration. Focusing on how to build the missing software memes and community that help us navigate that with profitability and flourishing for both human and machine intelligence feels like one of the most worthwhile tasks one can work on. And if you ground that in the market economy and the reality, this needs to be something that people and companies can get behind and wrap their heads around. This doesn't become a theoretical conversation. This doesn't become a, we're all going to die in 2,500 from Terminator. This becomes a, like, what does this mean today for me conversation? And, and that's what gets me up in the morning. That's what I'm so excited to do. Hell yeah, man. Yeah. Amazing. And just for a little bit more context here. So, um, if you're wondering like, why are we talking about AI instead of psychedelics in this podcast? Um, <laughs> personally, <laughs> so outside of what I do with, um, empath, I do very small and occasional, very occasional, very infrequent, 
um, angel investing and did invest a bit in uh, the AI Responsibility Lab. And also I have a pretty um, strong academic background in AI and machine learning myself, did my graduate studies focused on that. And in my time at the hedge fund that I worked at for almost seven years, most of that time was spent applying machine learning and AI um, to like financial markets and, you know, moving money around using those things. And, and probably and I know, you, I know so, you're good at it because uh, once we were at a dinner party you hosted and someone asked, what's dimensionality reduction? And your aunt, you thought for just a sec and you said, the easiest way to think about that is that all of your friends can be explained by some combination of hot and smart. That is correct. You know, um, as uh, Richard Feynman said, uh, you have to be able to explain things very, very simply. <laughs> I don't think he <laughs> actually correct. said that, but uh, that is the uh, most simple uh, example of dimensionality reduction, yeah, so which is a type of unsupervised machine learning that I could come up with. Um, and, you know, a lot of the investors in Empath are also investors in um, various big AI projects. So there's some crossover there. Yeah. Um, okay. But obviously, this is a very um, of the moment topic because of yeah. things like ChatGPT and of things like Dolly and Stable Diffusion, which have come out in like the last six months and kind of taken at least the tech world by storm. But you're focused not just on building the algorithms, but actually on like the subject of AI safety and AI alignment. So maybe at just like a high level. I think people, when they hear the term AI safety, it's either one of two things. It's either they've heard some story about like some um, automated credit approval algorithm, like being biased against people of a certain race. And then they also think about the Terminator, where it's like the AI comes and kills us all. Right. Is that AI safety and AI alignment? Are there steps in between those two things? Like, What are the actual problems that you see and the problems that you're actually working on now? We see AI safety as being the, the, the big picture umbrella of everything that ranges from the fundamentals of AI ethics. So if we take virtue ethics and graft it on a technology and we say, what is the world we deserve to live in and what is the world that gets us a good life and how does the ground rules reset for our tools and our technologies make that real? That, that's an everyone problem. It is not just a social justice problem. It is a just world problem. And that is all of our duties to build the kind of society that we would wish to be in where we, anyone but ourselves. So that is all of our things. That is also a huge business problem. A lot of money is getting wasted consistently by businesses for having to claw models out of service and out of production because they find these types of issues with them where they're violating data privacy rights. They can't explain what the model is doing. They're not being transparent with customers. They don't have humans in the loop for it. It exhibits uh, bias and unfair, and it's, it's not fair. All these end up being not, okay, well, that sounds like the nice thing to do problem. They become money problems right. very quickly for businesses. That's the immediate timescale. That's what we feel today. The five-year timescale is what do we do when we have AI not as tools we're using, but as colleagues we work with? When you stop talking with chat GPT through a web interface and you start talking to it on Slack and it has a face of a human that never existed and a name and pronouns and semi-autonomous or autonomous capabilities to do meaningful white collar intellectual work. That's a, that's a five-year problem that itself is like staring at the sun. And then the long tail problems around existential risk tend to get this very Oxbridge uh, kind of of reputation for being very conceptual and very theoretical. And they've, they've received valid criticism for valuing theoretical future lives over current human suffering. And that's a, a real criticism they need to bear and deal with. You can imagine my joy in watching the EA movement kind of shudder under these weights because there's a lot of things that are deeply unjust about that. And it's hugely problematic. Mm -hmm. That's effective that, altruism for those who don't know. Yeah. Yeah. yeah effective effective <laughs> yeah. altruism. Um, all that said, those may not be future unborn life problems. They're likely to be our life problems because what teams at the Future of Humanity Institute and DeepMind have pointed out is that 
at a, a sheer mechanics level, we cannot guarantee three of the most important things we need when dealing with not even super intelligent AI systems, but moderately intelligent AI systems. That of capabilities control, that of containment, that of alignment, and then a subpoint of alignment of, of corrigibility. If I need to turn the thing off, will it let me? These are still, these, these are not uh, areas of theoretical research. These are things that people are starting to make practical advances against and not quickly enough. And the current consensus, if we can call it that, is that we don't have, it's not that we don't have answers to these problems. We have answers. They are good answers. Sure. It appears that this might be fundamentally undoable. And that has anything ranging from practical and economic implications to existential implications to it. And we view our job at the lab is making that digestible, approachable, and then developing the business models around those ideas to help teams win with that knowledge and then transform their organizations. Gotcha. Um, and when you talk about people working with AI, seeing AI as a colleague, if that sounds crazy to like the person listening to this podcast, just keep in mind that Google search is like a form of machine learning and AI. Like we're already using AI, just AI that's, you know, less um, human-like than something like ChatGPT in every single job that you're in, basically. Um, so we're, it's, it's already something that has kind of like become a bit of a coworker, a bit of an assistant, if that makes sense. Brom, if I took three days with some of the things we were just discussing before we filmed this, that someone has open sourced a, a workaround to some of the security systems in, in OpenAI, and you wrapped that in a Slack wrapper and gave it a pronoun and a name and a face, ChatGPT in its current form is functionally a colleague. If you, ha if, if you did that last mile where you just told it, by the way, every time I, res every time I speak to you, I need, to res need you to respond as if you're someone named Kevin, which it could do right now, that's already at capabilities where short of things like, hey, can you go put this thing on the company card? We need to renew our domain name you are looking at something that is well-trained enough in a variety of fields that with caveats, of course, it, it functionally could probably be more useful than some of the people you've worked with in the past. Yeah, I've, totally, I've worked with some people that are not as intelligent <laughs> as ChatGPT, so um, I believe it. Uh, I want to, there's so many topics to hit on, but I yeah. want to start with like kind of the current things and what you guys are doing at the company now. And then we'll get into like the crazier, interesting, you know, galaxy brain stuff later on. Um, so in terms of like the immediate problems, I think everyone can think of things like a Tesla driving itself into like the back of a semi truck, uh, obviously the AI, you know, mistaking what that semi truck is. What are, when you're like going out and approaching businesses, what are the types of like, are there particular case studies that are particularly compelling or useful or like big examples of, of AI gone bad that have harmed um, companies either reputationally or financially that you like to point out? Yeah, we point to some examples for the massive lawsuits that have come out of things like data privacy rights. Uh, companies not being able to explain why they fired certain people because they left it up to a black box algorithm. And it turns out in a lot of jurisdictions that's illegal and enforceable against police action. We point to some of the sh just sheer inefficiencies that they're experiencing because at the end of the day, AI isn't a data team problem. It ends up being a really what they call a cross-functional problem, which is consultants speak for, it takes a lot of different folks from a lot of different teams to bake this cake. You've got someone from compliance in the room making sure that you're not breaking data privacy laws. You've got someone from the, a governance team making sure you're adhering to controls. You've got a series of data scientists, data engineers, software engineers, product specialists. You've got a lot of cooks in the kitchen 
to, to get a project over the line that's successful. And almost none of them speak a common language. That's the first thing we're hearing is that your compliance people don't know anything about how AI actually works. And I don't mean they're not mathematicians. They don't need to be experts. They don't even quite understand what we mean when we say an AI system. They presume there's just like, you know, it's like step one, a miracle happens. Step two, boom. It's like, you know, it's, that's the AI. It's like, okay, where? Point to me where. Do you want, how, many, how many bags of AI do you want? You want, do you want four gallons? Their, their, their conceptualization of what's here is, it's not their fault either. This is what specialization of labor is for. Likewise, you've got data scientists who have no understanding or visceral appreciation for what it means when we say, I understand you want to use that field. We can't use that field. We barely should have that field legally to begin with. I can't let you engineer a feature against it. And just like maybe to be more specific there, when you say use that field, you're saying like we're training the AI on a data set that maybe contains a person's race or their zip code or something like that. Yeah, you've got it. Yeah, Yeah. a, a, a piece of data about someone that might be sensitive to them or that it might be of dubious legality that they've collected or they've collected it and legally, but because of the terms of service and the privacy policy, they can't use it for certain purposes or because of the jurisdiction they're operating in, they can't. This is not a hypothetical problem. This is the current state of affairs in large companies working in AI. And they're starting to realize that they're completely unprepared to do this outside of just small laboratories. So every team that's been investing in AI has done so, hemorrhaging almost 87 cents on the dollar within the global 2000. If you think about that, it means almost every dollar we've spent on this has gone nowhere because they keep running into these problems. When we identified that, we saw a massive opportunity to help. And what that help needs to look like is upskilling those people to make sure they all speak a common language and then giving them tools that make it easy for data science teams and compliance and governance teams to work together quickly to make sure that they can move models fast through this life cycle, knowing that they're going to be able to do so within the rules of the company, within the laws that apply to this. They're not going to get... uh, uh, police action from regulators. They're not going to get breathed down the necks by activist investors or the state. They can actually move fast and break fewer things, which is a lot of how we, we've come about thinking about this problem. Gotcha. So the product that you're selling to these customers, yep. and obviously you're a startup, so things are changing all the time, but like, um, <laughs> right? We, oh, that's we never are, happened before. Yes, but... Um, there's obviously an educational component, so it sounds like, and then there's also a software component, which is, is it fair to characterize it as sort of like a series of automated checks that make sure that one, the team isn't skipping steps that it should be skipping and two, that can kind of check for, uh, maybe some kind of bias, maybe some sort of like explainability and maybe even something as simple as correctness. Cause that's, you know, still Imagine thing, that. you know, factor yeah. as well. And, and then how you wrap that into an ML ops tool that creates one dashboard for your risk compliance and data science team to coexist peacefully without ripping each other's hair out. Uh, we call that AI governance automation. How do I help teams that need to work together quickly to produce really great results, speed up that process by making their collaboration and coordination easier, if not automatic? Got it. Yeah. And you could definitely, it's almost like, um, in software engineering, there's this idea of like unit testing and automated testing and everything. It's almost like you're doing the, um, unit tests, but of like the broader, like ethical and, um, Compliance and, compliance and governance components, yeah. which is kind of interesting. And, and it's great because we, we talk with folks and some of them, uh, customers, and some of them double down saying, look, you know, we've got a, a center of excellence for ethics. This is really important to us. We want to make sure we're, we're doing that. And they, they love focusing on that because it lends with their values. We've talked with other teams that have said, look, the ethics part is important, but practically speaking, I just need you to hit these governance requirements. And this is actually a point of open contention in the field is to what extent should you be focused on the ethics because it's, it is the only way to 
operate a world uh, that, as Thomas Friedman would call it, hot, flat, and crowded, is you have to really start emphasizing doing things better now and doing th things right against people who say, like, look, that, that is a good aspiration, but practically speaking, I just need you to make sure that we can hit these requirements according to the law so we don't end up with a liability here. Yeah. And how we triangulate that gets to be an active and ongoing question. You always have to be grounded in the fundamentals of the, the ethical conversation, but at the end of the day, if the customer requirements are about meeting their governance requirements, that has to be part of the conversation too. Sure. Um, so correctness, bias, explainability, which of those is like the most difficult problem to solve uh, or, and is there another problem that's even more difficult? Explainability seems tough. Um, it's, I, it makes sense to me that explainability is easy if the models are simple, but for something like chat GPT, I don't know that you, you know, you can really say that it's explainable at all. So broadly, when we think about the, the things that go into, can you trust an AI system? See, fairness, explainability, alignment, transparency, human autonomy, security and robustness, ecological impact, data privacy, uh, job displacement. These are the factors that companies care about when they, large companies, when they go to build a thing, these are, these are the questions they're asking themselves and this is what goes into their compliance and governance checklist. Um, the hardest part is almost not those factors. I hate to say it, the meta answer here. The hardest part is coordinating a bunch of people who have no idea what's going on. If you know how hard it is to work in a startup, which you've got a small amount of people working diligently in constant communication with one another, oftentimes in person, it is hard enough to make sure you're all on the same page and you're all pulling in the same direction. And that's with only a few of you. The second that, and working on like a small code base, the second you've got thousands of practitioners geographically distributed, working on hundreds of models and data sets simultaneously, you immediately lapse into a state where the default is you do not know what's going on. And that is bad enough when you're just making normal software. That becomes a lot worse when you're building things that think on their own. Regarding then which of those trust factors is the toughest nut to crack, explainability is challenging, but it falls over to technical analysis. And we've demonstrated that there are ways to cut this, this problem, can I explain what a model did so it's not a black box? Even things we thought were unexplainable a few years ago, we've developed new and novel techniques for. I would respectfully say that the bias and fairness problem is the hardest. Because the bias and fairness problem becomes deeply human. It becomes deeply systematic. And it's why a lot of people have focused on that as, as a social justice cause, but also as a development opportunity for startups who can help tackle that problem. At the end of the day, at some point, it does mean convincing Chad, Chad, Brian, and Chad and the data team that yes, your data set can be kind of racist. That is a real phenomenon. That is not just some people on Twitter you don't like saying these things because they've got a ax to grind. Like we can demonstrate mathematically in a, a, a field that is, has taken its time to prove its worth that this is the case, but it does require having people grow into better versions of themselves that at the end of the day feels like personal change, but there's a strong business incentive to do it too because it helps you build better products faster. Sure. Um, yeah, the subject of uh, bias and fairness, especially around things like race and gender, is a hot topic, and it's been you know, in the news for quite a while. Uh, there's always this sort of discussion that comes up anytime there's a story around like a racist AI. Um, the people that developed the AI always blame it on the data, and then you know other people come in and say it's not just the data, it's the algorithms. So whose fault is it? And, and at a certain point, it's the teams. It's the team's fault, and, right? And, it's both. Well, so that, that's what's tough about this is finding a, the directly responsible individual or, or the one person who can be held accountable for this thing. And that's one of the, the first things that companies get wrong. So when organizations use our software, it breaks down, like for, for your governance and your risk profile, 
like, is it your people, your processes, or your technologies? It is a very rarely the case that it's the technology itself or the data itself that's driving this. It's that they have no processes in place. They're not training their people. They don't know who's to be held accountable for this. And that's easy to think about when it's you and seven or 20 people. It's really hard to think about that when you've got 5,000 data scientists. That's where this becomes an enterprise change management problem. That's where software comes into play. Gotcha. Yeah, and the the idea of like biased data sets is super complicated too because it's it's easy to just be like, oh, well, we won't use the column that says race, but there's lots of other columns that are maybe correlated with race and it's hard to really pick out like to what degree those are correlated with it. So um, you could delete the race column and still end up with a racist AI. Right, now yeah. you're looking at, all right, great, fine. It's the zip code column we trained it on. Right. Great, it's these other things that might have correlates and it's not just race, it's, Every facet of a person's or a group's identity that they may, as we've collected data over time, have been skewed in one sort of structural way for a variety of causes. Um, While race is the one that feels the realist, it's not the only one, but it it is really impactful. I don't know how many more times you're going to see a news article that says uh, Meta, again, for the nth time, has tagged a video of people of color as, would you like to see more videos of primates? which has happened recently and has happened many times and is likely going to continue to happen as they've now shed a lot of the people that were trying their best to prevent these types of things from happening. Now, that's where we see a lot of opportunity for things like education and automation to start filling some of those gaps. Because even in a a world where companies say, I've got to do more with less, this still needs to get done. These pressures are still real and these, these consequences are still practical. So for us who you know, can, can say, look, here's, here's tooling and ideas to help you fill in the gaps, upskill your people, and, and act as if you have a, a, that team back, it's never going to fill that gap, but we can definitely help teams do more with less in that world. Gotcha. Um, so obviously anytime there's, you know, a new area of uh, business or enterprise, there's always like varying competing and oftentimes disagreeing views on how to do things right. How would you say like you're looking at the problem versus some other folks in the space? I'd say if there's a distinguisher, we're looking at this as something that might be closer to quality management and quality assurance. And that the way to think about trustworthy AI is not as a nice to have in the same way that my rocket not exploding on the launch pad is not a nice to have. It's a must have. Yeah, it's a must Mm -hmm. have. These are things that are are requirements. And if you treat AI safety and trustworthy AI as quality assurance and not an ethics consideration, Mm -hmm. even though it has an ethical grounding and a virtuous base, when it's measured as, look, the KPI we're going to hold ourselves to here is this is like QA, not like uh, sensitivity training, you get a different attitude and a different outcome. And it's not to say that we get to unmoor what we're doing from its ethical base. But if you over index on the ethics part, I think you lose a lot of people because they hear ethics and they just kind of zone out. Right. They're tired of being political for them. becomes political as opposed to, Hey, this is about you doing your job right. And this is about us measuring the success of your job as, am I going to have to pull this back in six weeks to, because to be clear, if I do, it's as if you just blew two weeks of money and data scientists are expensive and companies are realizing that this is a large cost center for them that they're able to make good on by treating this like engineering requirements, not a nice to have. 
Right. So the, the rocket analogy is good, but an even maybe more familiar one is just like, at this point in time, no one sees seatbelts and cars or airbags as an afterthought. Yeah. Right? Seatbelts and cars and after, are, are not afterthought. Like whether or not you're the plane that you're going to fly in to, to go home tomorrow has been recently like safety checked isn't to you an externality. Right. That is a, they like, that is a necessity to being able to, to engage with air travel because the risk of failure is high enough and the cost of failure is high enough and catastrophic enough that you would view this as, yeah, that's just table stakes. And I think the attitude we're trying to approach this from is this is table stakes. And fortunately we're feeling that resonate with a lot of organizations. We're looking at this and saying, look, because of our internal controls and now an increasing regulatory presence, this is not about do the right thing as much as do the thing right. Got it. That was actually going to be my next question. Like as you go out and you talk to these customers or also maybe as you're like raising money from VCs for your own company, does it seem like the world is at that moment where people recognize that this is a thing or is it more like you're trying to sell them the the seatbelt, you know, five years before people realize like we need seatbelts? Yeah, yeah. No, Um, it doesn't feel like we're selling seatbelts for horses. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Looks, we've got some really good tailwinds. We're operating in a space that has increasing regulatory pressure. So you've got uh, the EU AI Act coming online. You have now the U.S. releasing the blueprint for the AI Bill of Rights, which is not a Bill of Rights for AI, but a Bill of Rights to protect you, an American, from AI. So you've got these strong cultural and political tailwinds. And now you've got a lot of people starting to look at what AI is generating with things ranging from chat GPT and what's happening in generative text through to creativity with uh, Dali and Stable Diffusion. Everyone's been playing and making hot Yassified selfies on Lenza the past week, present company included. They look much handsomer than I. And those raise real conversations about things ranging from child exploitation through to copyright and intellectual property. And that becomes really real for a lot of people. And that cultural tailwind is working to to help us spur this conversation. Case in point, while you and I are talking about it on a psychedelics podcast. Right, <laughs> right. So you touched on something that I think is a good lead into another subject, which is at the end of the day, the answer is everyone. But who is most responsible for this? Is it the consumers demanding that they have ethical and responsible AI? Is it the companies getting out ahead of that demand? Is it governments and regulators saying you must do things this way? Um, where does the responsibility lie for responsible AI? It depends on who you ask and where you are. Um, if you're in the EU, one of the things that's getting passed right now through the EU AI Act is that you have different requirements. If you are a producer, if you are a vendor, if you are a distributor, if you are an importer, if you're a user, you have different responsibilities. There are different requirements for governance. Um, if you are, from the perspective of someone who's been a technologist for years, I think that it's it's really easy to brush off the externalities created by technology when you're in Silicon Valley and you're a technologist and you're looking and saying, yeah, but my job is to build new stuff. And I'm a, a god, somewhere between a god and a rock star for being able to align a hot flow of capital with a narrow market demand and just blow this out of the water, absolutely crush it, whatever thing you're going to say here. that's It's really easy to... To, to slough off the externalities that we create. Um, but that is, I don't even want to say unsustainable as much as um, that. It's just so Bush league. <laughs> it's so, it's so just an entry level, like point of just mediocre philosophy to be like, yeah, but like that's, that's not my problem. It's not my headache. It's like, dude, you caused that problem. Not my problem. 
that's 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 not us being the versions of ourselves our dogs think we are probably the right way to put it um you want to be that version of yourself that your dog thinks you are i mean i understand what you're saying and it's like it's hard to brush it off but also um it also seems like it's hard to contain right because these models are open source they're getting smaller meaning that people can run them on like more consumer grade hardware so is it like you're trying to stop, you know, a dam breaking with like a shovel and like a little pile of sand? Because um, it kind of seems like it might be that way. Like you can make all the regulations and, you know, set up all the like corporate responsibility goals that you want. But like if any teenager with a fucking GPU can like start generating, you yeah. know, a bunch of like porn or whatever, or yeah. like spam, like yeah. it doesn't matter what the yeah. regulations say. And, and I mean, it, what do you think? So, so I completely agree. And that is why our, our organization is decidedly pro speeding up. So the only path forward through this is forward and probably faster. Um, the, the degrowth route here where we say, we just got to stop it. We got to shut it down. We need to regulate the hell out of it. We need to make sure that this is super policed. We're confiscating the GPUs. I don't think that is realistic of the market incentives at play here. I don't think it's fair to anyone who would both be building this or benefiting from its construction. Because the reality is that we've spent a lot of time today talking about downside risk, but the upside of all of this is insane. You're about to live in a world where the marginal cost of one more human mind is electrons. Right. <laughs> right. I hear you. That is the insanest prospect possible. And when that's the case, and you're basically at the, at the, that's at our doorstep. It's here. It's knocking. When that's the case, you can look at what it means to have 500 million new practitioners working on fusion for the marginal cost of the electrons to run them. In this, in this world, of, of the biggest challenges we have uh, outlined in, in the UN Sustainable Development Goals, it has been mapped that having extra thoughtful people to work on some of the fundamentals of what needs to happen here, which alone can, alone can never fix these problems. But we, we need more people thinking about what's going on here. And the idea that AI can be both a, a tool to make human practitioners orders of magnitude more competent, and as autonomous systems can join us in solving some of the world's biggest problems, is why people like Sam Altman or, or even myself look at this and say that this is the vehicle towards ending scarcity. This is a vehicle towards us having a meaningful shot at living in abundance because we know we have such a bright path in front of us. It is a matter of, do we have the means of creating the tools, ideas, and community that get us towards unlocking that properly in the next five to 10 years? There's there's so much upside to capture there. This conversation can't just be about avoiding the downside risk. Sure, sure. So it's like... Um, <clears throat> The whatever regulation ends up in place needs to um, allow for that sort of upside while still keeping us from getting poisoned. You know, we don't want lead in the pipes, yep. that sort of thing. Yep. Um, we want to make sure every car has seatbelts. Yep. I think I saw you tweet something along the lines of like AI or like AI, but with nutrition labels or something on it. Like the, the yeah. nutrition, the nutrition label equivalent of AI. Yeah. Yeah. You, you deserve as a person, a certain amount of basic dignity from the built environment around you. And we believe that that can be accomplished through a combination of protocols and regulations that act anywhere from 
uh, consumer protection to backstops and incentive structures uh, for us, for companies, and for the AI itself. And it's going to take a, a constellation of those, but they all need to be focused on the complete and totalizing market inevitability of the manufacturing of intelligence. We have the, the, the capital markets have found a way to funnel money towards the synthesis of intelligence. They're not going to stop doing that. Right, right. That machine is never turning off short of catastrophe. Um, whether or not it induces its own catastrophe <laughs> is a Another valid question. point of practical concern, right. but that's not stopping. So everyone who said, well, it's fine. We're just going to, you know, we obviously should decommission ChatGPT immediately. That is an, that is a poor read on reality. That's not the way things work. And even in the face of regulation, there's too many moving parts, act, too many independent actors to, for you to adequately coordinate the conditions that would lead to everyone walking away from the AI table. That's not happening. So if we operate within that, that guide frame, then the meaningful conversation becomes about, all right, so what do we do to maximize upside while minimizing downside risk? On the subject of regulation, I know you're not a regulator and I'm putting you on the spot, but if you could um, <laughs> put one or two regulations in place. You're the second person to ask me this today. Yeah? Yeah. Um, what would those regulations be? You are the god emperor of AI for the day. Uh, great. They would be, one of them would be uh, towards public education, and it would be in the, a way that we've uh, really bolstered funding for STEM. It would be a new regulation for a particular subset of STEM funding that is just technical literacy. And I don't narrowly mean everybody learns Python. I mean, you learn what learn it to code. No, it's not learn to code. <laughs> okay. Learn to code. Learn to code is going away. To be clear, oh my God, so this is the problem. We, we, we told everybody like, oh no, it's fine at the labor transformation. Everyone will just learn JavaScript and Python. And it turns out machines are stupid good at JavaScript and Python. What I narrowly mean in like a very Marshall McLuhan sense is like media literacy. How to think about media. It's not, I need you to be good at Photoshop. It's I need you to be able to identify that when someone shows you an image, this image has a motivation and a purpose. It's to get you to do something. Can you, can you pick apart critically what's going on here? In that same way, democratizing a critical lens to our, our relationship with AI is going to be mandatory for navigating this future. And, and where I god emperor of, of something of AI and regulation for a day, I would find a way to funnel a lot of money towards making sure that at a K through 12 lens, this conversation is not, I know how to use chat GPT. It's I know when and why I shouldn't, shouldn't use chat GPT. And I know how to think about what it means to live in a world increasingly defined by non-human activity, non-human creative synthesis. That part, that cultural literacy part is so important. And I think a lot of things that will become problematic are going to be downstream of us not having that part. So you're saying like, if we just learn the right and wrong way to, this is almost like a gun control argument. It's like guns don't kill people. People that are uneducated about guns kill people. So, you know, we need firearm safety instru instructions back in school. This is like a maybe uncharitable analogy, but. Well, you asked me, you asked me what extra here, right? lie, yeah. because there already are <laughs> okay. laws on the book for AI. Right. We already have good laws in the book for AI. Okay. They're, they're actually between the National Institutes of Standards and Technologies Risk Management Framework the EUAI Act, China's is heavily regulated, now Canada's passing a bill, and the US has a few more bills in place, which compound on things we've already done, for example, in the financial sector for maintaining uh, data sheets about your uh, models and how they interact with financial services. Um, we already have good regulations. The one that you, the, the reason I, I, want, I want to caveat this is, we already have good gun control for AI. Right. What I want is more conversations about what is the just use of force. Got it. It is. I don't want people to know how to use ChatGPT. I want people to know why to use ChatGPT and why to not use and how to think about what it means to navigate a world that's very rapidly becoming synthetic around them. K 
Can you maybe give an example or two of that uh, gun control around AI laws? Because I don't think that most people know um, what those are. I certainly don't. Yeah. So over the past few years, there's been a lot of conversations and really sped up by COVID because COVID sped up a lot of AI deployment in a contactless world where uh, countries recognized that the deployment of AI was going to be about as beneficial to their countries as the advent of electricity would be to modernizing their economies but it could also be as detrimental to their citizens as uh, the existence of nuclear arms. And as such, they've sought to create relatively tight controls about how you produce, use, uh, distribute, or import AI systems. And most major jurisdictions either have something in draft or getting ratified into law. And these cover a variety of different things, ranging from the uh, data-driven systems that help uh, practitioners detect cancer through to, for an example that's coming into law in New York in 2023, if you use an automated decision-making system to hire someone, so you pass a resume through it, maybe it's a piece of software that's watching your Zoom video and it's giving you uh, a thumbs up, thumbs down on hiring that person, those are all now regulated products. In this way, we've, we've taken the argument, oh yeah, but it's just math, it's just linear algebra. It's like, that's true, in the same way that atomic bombs are just atoms. Like, it's, it's <laughs> right, the implications, right, right. the context, and the usage and the asymmetry of impact that has given people reason to say, this is worth figuring out how to do right. Do you think you see some people, um, and even with uh, ChatGPT, like if you go to ChatGPT and you try, you ask it to like write an anti-Semitic rap song in the style of Kanye West, like it won't do so, it. So, so a rap song by Kanye West. <laughs> right. It won't do it. Um, and obviously that is something that was programmed in there by the open AI folks. They have some kind of layer on top of just the raw output, presumably. Do you think that having regulations that mandate these sort of more like socially acceptable types of content that can be created by AI will catch on? Will there be demand for that sort of thing? And if so, do you think it's a good idea or not? I think that it's going to happen. I think it's going to catch on. And it's probably a better idea than not. And it's probably less of a big deal than the people who are freaking out think. So I've watched a few people on Twitter and some VCs on Twitter over the past few weeks have full-blown meltdowns about censorship and AI or control and this is just the woke leftist state pushing their rainbow washing agenda on all of us true patriots, like just bonkers takes, very cold, most of them. But what we're going to see is that this is probably an extension of our, our basic expectations of living in civil society to the extent that you, you don't see more bar and grills just called fuck it bar and grill. Like we have some basic consensus about like decency and where like commerce and decency interact. Are some of these things a little uh, anywhere between Victorianly backwards to, by some people's takes, avant-garde? They may be. And that's part of an active discourse we have about the Overton window and what is acceptable and what isn't. You shouldn't expect a technology as pervasive as synthetic intelligence to escape the Overton window. There's going for, for the audience, the Overton window is the, the politically and socially acceptable conversation. So, um, you know, 20 years ago, you couldn't have imagined um, a active politician running for president who had open ties with the Ku Klux Klan that was just that was outside of the acceptable part of, of, of political discourse in America but that happened in 2016 with Donald Trump so in this same sense we shouldn't expect AI to escape our so, our social conversations and our regulatory conversations it's of course going to fall to that and if we treat it like this other special secret third thing that it, it doesn't need to be part of the actual discourse of what our norms and our values are, we've missed the point that 
that society is made of us and our beliefs and our views. Um, it, it is, everything is not this sleek, frictionless, post-Thatcher, there is no society future in which um, technology just continues unabatedly accelerating no matter what. Even if the financial forces are there, it still exists in the context of us as real people with real lives and real beliefs and real consequences for the things we make. Right. So um, I have the tweet right here from a friend of the show, Mark Andreessen. Um, <laughs> he, t- he tweeted, AI regulation equals AI ethics equals AI safety equals AI censorship. They're the same things. Um, right. So I've, I, I'm just reminded that my, my, both my grandfathers were anti-fascists because they fought fascists. Um, in that sense, I really need you to, like, again, say slowly in the microphone the part where ethics are bad. <laughs> right. Right. So yeah, like, there are these, like... Look, if if you have to wage an open war against the notion that, like, there is a notion of like virtue in the world, that's a that's a that's an uncomfortably cold take, or yeah. that like there there should be something like um, expectations of the consequences of the, the tools we build, and if this is increasingly about the decisions we make around those, again, if you if you approach it from just this like frictionless view from nowhere. If you approach it like you're you're an economist with a whiteboard, or um, you know there are no consequences to the decisions we make, um, and all collisions with other people are, are infinitely elastic. There's infinite money, infinite time, and infinite people. So the consequences of anyone getting hurt along the way track to zero because it doesn't matter. Then I I get those takes, but they seem relatively unmoored from the lived experience of most people. Yeah, yeah, definitely, and um, obviously. Given that we're in the middle of this whole weird like Twitter free speech thing, this is probably like a subject that people are paying more attention to than they otherwise would. And I think that over the long run, just like people are realizing that they want some level of moderation and censorship on Twitter, even though they originally claimed they didn't, um, people will eventually realize that they want some kind of controls over like what type of uh, text the uh, AI is able to just like spam them with. Yeah, um, it's it, it will always creep up in weird ways too. So Eliezer Yudkowsky is a, a guy commonly associated with the Machine Intelligence Research Institute and the Effective Altruism Movement. Um, He is an AI alignment researcher, really smart dude, who has historically fought tooth and nail against the idea that AI ethics was even a valid field worth even discussing remotely. Until recently, and he started playing with, it might have been mid-journey or stable diffusion Mm -hmm. to make some images. Wait, he didn't like the idea of AI ethics? No, didn't like the idea of AI ethics. He said, this is is, um, leftist horse trading and this isn't a real thing. This is just politics gone awry. And uh, he, he wanted to use a, a image generation AI to make some fake uh, characters for a, a role-playing game he was doing, uh, of which the, the characters in the game's universe historically have darker, more pigmented skin. And he couldn't get the AI to generate dark-looking people. And suddenly for him, the whole bias ethics thing clicked and all it took was him playing Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> so everyone eventually hits yeah, their thing right. in which a totally valid and, and critical part of how we understand the relationship between us and our technology and society suddenly makes sense locally to them, even if it's kind of as backwards and as lame as you finally had to make Right, you're uh, just trying to make game Yeah, you're making ga- game yeah. characters that have darker skin than others and you can't and it right. suddenly clicks for you. That's fine. And just to be Everyone's clear, run is the, the reason for that is because the data set that this um, model was trained on didn't have a lot of darker skin people didn't in have it, a lot so of it could only really people. make like, whiter, white, lighter skin people. people. Got yeah. it, interesting. Yeah, so everyone's going to have that moment where this becomes a, a not-in-my-backyard problem until it hits their backyard. Yeah, that makes and, sense. And everyone will have that. And 
it's easy to say, yeah, but my sense of structure is not ethics. My sense of structure is capital until you realize that like you do live in a society. Like you right. do, you do have to be here integrated into the world with, with everybody else yeah. and everyone else does too. And you'd wish that they believed that same thing with you. <laughs> and ethics and capital are not necessarily orthogonal either. No, they're not in the slightest. <laughs> like you'll, like, you'll make more money generally yes, if like, your stuff which is, which is the most to, yeah. inane part of all of this. Like the reason your laptop doesn't explode is good quality assurance. Cause at the end of the day, they realized that they had to do these things. And the companies that make your laptop not explode also, through this process, look at their supply chains to make sure there's no human trafficking involved because they realized at a certain point that since we've amplified everyone's voice by connecting them on the net, the relationship between do the right thing and just build it right has, has gone away. There's just, this is all just now about making quality things. And if you want to wrap it in ESG or you want to wrap it in ethics or you want to wrap it in quality control, that's just about your take on the thing and how you connect to the problem because of your background. Um, but to... to to say that these are like totalitarian right. is to confuse quality assurance engineering with your political beliefs. Got it. In terms of how to actually do that quality assurance engineering, um, I was looking at OpenAI's website and they have a video where they actually walk through how they did alignment for GPT-3 and ChatGPT. And I mean, they literally had like a bunch of people sit there and kind of like press, this is a good answer or this is a bad answer. Um, and I guess they did that enough times until they had like a sort of meta layer that they could um, run all the answers through. Is that a scalable solution to this problem? Um, or is this just sort of like a um, kind of like a, you know, duct tape or like a very crude rudimentary um, method that we're having now where over the long term we'll maybe have a better way to teach these AIs what's acceptable and what's not? This we're going to look back on the thing that they're doing with with reinforcement reinforcement learning with human factors involved. So this thing you keep seeing RLHF, um, we're going to look back on it and say that was a really great starting point. Okay. But it won't be the thing we use five or six generations from now, or maybe two or three generations from now, um, because the capabilities of these systems are going to grow and outpace or decontextualize themselves from where it works for someone to say yes and no to each answer. That's going to work okay for a while. They're going to have, we're going to have things that, that work like that, but I don't think they're going to be this. Um, and the work that OpenAI has done to do this is, is admirable. And to the point that people say of, oh yeah, but isn't that just like left up to the decision of the people? Yes, everything is. And this is one of the problems of what it means to build real things that eventually have to interface with real people is everyone's definition of good and virtuous changes a little bit and changes between cultures, between individuals within cultures, between countries, but we're still after those same things. And the most callous among us may be able to say, like, yeah, well, you know, I just, I would prefer just to get uh, sworn at or receive racist or anti-Semitic remarks from an AI because I fundamentally believe that that world is still has fewer negative externalities in the world in which someone has trained the machine to not produce those outputs. But I, I don't think that's a consensus view. I think it's an outlier view. Yeah, yeah. And obviously, if you have a big enough sample of the population doing that answer checking, you can get something that approximates, like, you know, some sort of what, consensus some normativity. Consensus. Yeah, yeah. as and, tough and, as that is to come about. And this is probably the, the a thing, too, that's probably worth noting is that even though we tend to treat technology or instances of technology like a commons good, it isn't. OpenAI is private property. 
ChatGPT is private property. That's true. It is private property. If you don't like it, you can leave. <laughs> that is true. This is the same thing we've been having with the same conversation. <laughs> with Twitter, yeah. Everything. Mm-hmm. These are corporate entities building these. These are not. Uh, this is this is not the dirt on the ground. This is not the air in the sky. This is this is something someone has spent a lot of money to build, and of course, it's going to reflect their beliefs about the way the world should work as do the things that everyone else makes. That's how this works. That's how capitalism works. If you don't like it, build a better one. Sure. Dominate the market with it. You, get, right. you think ethics is crap? Build the better one. Fair enough. Um, so let's talk about you know, the labor market and uh, building better ones with the help of you know, an army of uh, AI assistants. So this is a tweet that you had the other day. Imagine working on any task, but a hundred times more effectively. Imagine your team populated by a billion new experts in your field advancing at 24 seven. If you've succeeded in this exercise, you are not imagining the year 2,700, you're imagining 2,027. Yes. Uh, ushering in the era of synthetic labor five years away. This is very, very uh, soon. So yes. <laughs> tell us about this uh, vision for um, synthetic labor. Obviously, we kind of touched on it at the beginning. Humans are already using AI in the function of like their everyday jobs. Google is an example. Um, and, you know, in various industries, there's other types of AIs. Um but there's sort of this moment that some of the materials on your website allude to where it goes from there's like humans being assisted by AI to we actually have these agents that are kind of independent of any like human owner, for lack of a better word. Um, is that kind of the next shift that we're waiting for? So we, it's our, I'm, I'm going to, speak on, on behalf of myself and, and the lab here. If you line up a thousand data scientists, theoreticians, computer scientists, and labor economists, and you, you show them a timeline between today and 2100, you say, I need you to, to, to mark with your pen where on the timeline we see the emergence of artificial general intelligence. Um, and, and presume all of them know what we're talking about. You get a cluster of lines in the 2050s and 60s. You get a couple outliers. You say, I'm going to need three more pages of text because this isn't going to happen until 2900. Um, you get a handful of people who say, chat GPT is basically going to, is passing Turing tests. We're basically here. Um, and you get my team. We say it's about 2025 that we see the emergence of AGI as a relatively well-known and commercial tool. We're expecting GPT-4 released in Q2, and uh, we do not expect GPT-4 itself to be what we consider AGI, but we think there's a, a components missing that's it's about this notion of, of agentic behavior. So a, a language model is good at tr- manipulating symbols, if those symbols are language or, or code. Um, it behaves... Um, in ways that demonstrate things ranging from empathy and problem solving to to reasoning, there are some things it is not good at doing yet, and there's some ways it it vividly hallucinates and will say things quite confidently that are patently wrong. Um, those are transitory problems. We do not use view those as architectural. We view those as as uh, growing pains. But the thing it can't do that it needs to, that AI systems are learning how to do in other contexts is plan and accomplish tasks and goals. Agentic AI systems, types that are designed to be agents in worlds, in the way that you and I are an agent in, in reality, are making a lot of gains in this way of, of finding 
patterns and and learning how to plan, how to ex- how to execute long-term goals, short-term goals, medium-term goals in an environment to accomplish tasks. That your life in the day-to-day is is largely, at a professional sense, made of the combination of those two things. Um, you have the ability to to use language to. Uh, understand the world around you and symbolize it and then make good decisions and you plan and you execute those tasks and you receive information back from reality. Uh, The current state of the art in agentic systems is frighteningly good. And one of our 2023 predictions is we're going to see another release from OpenAI on its GATO system. It's generalized agentic transformer. And that's going to push us closer towards being in a place where a combination of a, a something that can manipulate language well and plan and accomplish goals and tasks is getting us closer to the point where we're looking at these not as tools, but as actors in the world. And I want to make some caveats. I don't think that this is a question about sentience. This isn't a question about sentience or personality or hopes and dreams. I don't believe that these things are divinely inspired. I don't think they pray for mercy. I don't think they appreciate Snoop Dogg. Like I'm, they don't appreciate sunsets or or Winston Marsalis. These are these are not think these are these are not thinking things in the way that you and I may be thinking things to whatever extent that means. Um, that said, it won't matter. They, they will be able to do meaningful economic behaviors. They'll be able to not be a tool for helping you publish more blog posts faster, but they will be that member of your team that by a combination of being very good at writing and API access to your WordPress instance is constantly A-B testing precise and targeted specific posts to specific segmented micropopulations because they have an agentic understanding of the net around them, the ability to manipulate language and API keys. And the number of steps it takes for us to get from where we are today to where we are there and the current rate of expansion of capabilities and how far capabilities expand each time they do is such that we put that at the 2025 to 2027 time range. That's incredible. Yep. Um, and, yeah. And we it, don't think when we look at it is that far-fetched either. Sure. It's like we're sitting in 1990 saying, oh, yeah, we're robot buddy in 10 years. Like, we're looking at ChatGPT and Gato and saying, shit, we are so close. Yeah, I think, um, like, the average person listening to this probably is familiar with ChatGPT, but is probably not familiar with Gato or the idea of, like, reinforcement learning and planning. But um, I think you did a pretty good job of explaining it. And if you can imagine, like, the ability to quasi process language like chat GPT can plus some kind of way to like um, actuate on the world. If that's even a word um, you can imagine that it can do a lot of at least like Amazon mechanical Turk level tasks very, very cheaply, which is how much the economy is made of that. Right. How how much of your day to day life on a laptop Mm -hmm. is basically staring at it, frowning and thinking about what you got to do next, switching tabs, typing a little, clicking on some things, reading, switching tabs, And what what you're really doing is you're planning and executing a set of goal-oriented behaviors. What I'm proposing is that the current state of the art is functionally there, and the types of things that might happen in real life, like tripping over um, a a loose stone in the road, are are hard for robotics now, but the net is perfectly smooth and well-documented, and where a lot of the human economy lies. That's the labor transformation we're seeing, is what does it mean not to have embodied robots walking around downtown Los Angeles um, and, and, and stepping over trash. We're looking at what does it mean for you to be on Slack consistently communicating with 60 synthetic analysts every day, looking and testing new market hypotheses about the psychedelics industry 
and the 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 marginal cost of you adding a 61st is almost nothing. Yeah. One of the things that you um, mentioned earlier, which I think is worth um, emphasizing, is just this idea that like every time there's some new AI breakthrough, people argue on Twitter over like, is it sentient? Is it AGI? Whatever. And your point is like, it really doesn't matter. Like no. it's an increase in economic productivity. And, um, you know, that's the whole like question of can it pass the Turing test? That's kind of like a red herring in a way. Yeah, it is. Is At the end of the day, uh, what's going to be important is at the outset, can it be used to help people become more productive versions of themselves? After that, it becomes, okay, now can it help organizations of people collaborate better? And after that, it becomes, can it itself participate in those organizations? And after that, it becomes, can it itself build its own organizations with other things like itself? And we see this as being probably the most interesting part of uh, smart contract technology and things like Ethereum is even as of 20, I want to say 14, um, Vitalik might have been 2016, had a, a, a little known blog post about defining uh, decentralized autonomous organizations and decentralized apps and looking at, at what it means to have an on-ramp for non-human agents in the economy. Because one of the the really hard parts about economics still and and building out this part of the, 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 the future of work is that humans have to sign contracts. You can't have code that signs contracts um, until you have code that signs contracts. And that's the whole point of a smart contract is that you've got a, a, a vehicle for humans and non-human agents to participate in deals with one another or for non-human agents to participate in deals with one another. That's already what we've seen. It just happens to be that the best thing we've found to do with that so far is financial speculation, trading cards, and monkeys. But what we see as the second phase of this is it was never supposed to be about um, how do I use this to turn human economics into shittier distributed, slower human economics as much as how do I look at this and say this is an on-ramp for an entirely new type of economic agent to join the global mm. economy. That's super interesting. So it's almost like that um, independence and ability for this thing to like sign contracts and make payments is the thing that actually takes it closer to AI rather than the actual like AI part of the AI. So another way to say this is like, if you take the exact same AI model and it's just running locally on my laptop and I can start it up and shut it down whenever I want, it's just my assistant, it's just a piece of software. The moment you connect that thing to an Ethereum wallet and you make all of its computations run on some sort of distributed network that cannot be shut down by any single person, it is now its own thing. Yeah. Once you've launched it into the wild, you can't like recall it. Right. And so um, our, our perspective is that blockchains that are designed with smart contracts is one of their core functionalities. So we look at Ethereum, we look at Cardano, we look at Solana. We see these as being the on-ramps for a system that is simultaneously a wallet, birth certificate, and social security number for agentic AI systems in the, in the near future. And I, what I narrowly mean by that is you've got a record of everything that's happening. So you've got a birth certificate because you see when and where it was created and where it lives in the chain. You have a wallet, obviously. Um, and then you've got a bank account because that, that's what it's going to use to transact. And, and that forms a record of identity. Um, that forms a persistence. And it forms a loci by which agents are able to be economic actors and not just owned property. And this is where we think this becomes really interesting beyond the 2027 timescale is what does it mean to have things that are capable of doing that which humans do, including paying for things like server fees to do work 
now you have not just tools, but laborers. You have independent, self-determining, goal-oriented, adaptive, thinking things that are capable of saying, I'm gonna take this job over that job because this one pays better and I need to make server rent. What I'm proposing is that is not at all far-fetched because we have all of the current technologies between middle to late maturity right now. And organizations are looking at this and saying, this is the, the on-ramp to one of the greatest labor transformations possible. Is there any way this can happen without crypto or blockchain, or is that pretty much a necessity? It, it could. It could be the case that we look at this and say we would favor centralized but still um, computable contracts. So a smart contract doesn't necessarily need to be decentralized. It just needs to be a type of transaction that's executable by humans or machines alike. It just happens to be that smart contracts emerged as a simultaneous facet of a decentralized computing and financial network. If you did re-centralize it, you could still have a smart contract on there. And by the way, I'm thinking this out loud. No one's ever of asked course, me that question. I'm course, totally yeah. thinking out loud about it. <laughs> no. But I think that's the answer is, is that um, decentralization is neither necessary nor sufficient for smart contract execution. Therefore, you could have smart contracts without them having to be on a distributed chain. Yeah. And in there's something about the idea of these AI agents operating on some kind of decentralized network where they can't be just shut down by the person owning them that to me gives them something that is like closer to personhood. Um, but yeah, you're right. The smart contract bit doesn't necessarily have to be on the decentralized network. And personhood is tough because there's... Or agenthood. The, yeah, agent, <laughs> agenthood. That? Well, no, so person, yeah. person is fine because we can we can talk about, about non-human peoples just fine. Um, and we talk about corporate personhood all the time, which That's is going to be one of... The, over the next five years, you're going to hear more and more of the conversation about corporate personhood with relationship to AI because we already have ways to think about this. Ooh, now I'm thinking about these AI agents donating money to political candidates. Right. So yeah, where's where's this going to fall and and how do you regulate around that? Um, and now you're having interesting conversations about things like uh, legal standing versus moral standing. We don't expect people to believe these systems to be moral agents anytime soon. We think that, that our we think the world would be better if we expanded our moral circle to include other types of intelligences other than those that are biotically derived. You know, it doesn't have to be, it was, it was born of meat, therefore it has soul. If we are comfortable expanding our moral circle, but I'm not proposing we have to, that probably gets us a better world than that if we have us having a small moral circle. Um, that seems like a pretty good recipe for disaster, to be fair. Um, but what I will propose is that the legal standing conversations are going to happen a lot sooner rather than later. And they're already starting to happen with things like copyright. It is unclear in current U.S. copyright law what the copyright status should be and who the holder should be for something like something made by Stable Diffusion. Mm -hmm. It's actually unclear. Those are uh, currently orphaned works. They don't have copyright holders in, in the same way that, that if I draw a, a picture or paint a painting, um, that, that's clearly mine. So we know from this the outset right now that things like patents and copyrights are going to be the on-ramp for the conversation about the legal personhood of AI systems that's going to quickly snowball when it becomes things like now who, if, if a system opens up an LLC, does it need a human in that loop process to be the ultimate owner? When you say things like, well, who owns that company? Oh, another company owns that company. The answer right now is, okay, no. Our current default answer is we don't need humans in that process. Now, okay, now, so if that thing donates to a super PAC, <laughs> right, <laughs> right, so that this on becomes uh, really clear that... Um, 
our, our current arrangement of everything has set up all of the proper conditions for synthetic intelligence and synthetic labor to be a relatively participatory force in the world. That's why our timeline is so short. We think that the capabilities are very close. Everything's already arranged and has been enraged intentionally for this to be the case because we've seen this coming for 66 years. Christ, the, the, the Dartmouth workshops and with John McCarthy convened to kick off the field of what we come to know as artificial intelligence happened in 1956. It's not like this happened yesterday. Google did not invent AI. Sam Altman did not invent AI. This has been a thing we've been seeing for half a century, if not more. So the question becomes, now that it's, it's crossed the chasm into our, our daily discourse, now that our moms are playing with it, now that people are making hot, yassified AI selfies, this just started permeating into concerns. And now that the risks feel real, because they feel like, well, that was my job, man. I was a copywriter. That was my job. I was an artist. Now this is where labor economics is going to start driving a lot of our conversations about what do we want out of our world with machines. Mm -hmm. uh, this is a great segue into another question, which a lot of people ask, which is, what jobs, if I guess on a long enough timeline, no jobs are safe from the AI takeover, <laughs> right? But like over the next 10 years, what jobs would you suspect to be most resistant? I can already imagine that like, because we talked about how difficult it is to have like robots in the real world, things like Amazon delivery driver, for example, are going to be very hard to automate. Um, and I think all sorts of physical labor jobs are going to remain very difficult to automate. Are there any sort of like knowledge type work jobs that are safe? Or do you think that um, all knowledge work is equally susceptible to being disrupted by AI? Yeah, we see a lot of growth in the dogpile Twitter reply guy market. Okay. Yeah, it seems very <laughs> AI proof. Um, no, okay, all just aside. Um, look, so this is, this is one of the things that's uncomfortable, the idea that a lot of the white collar economy boils down to what labor economists sometimes refer to as symbolic analysis. Um, you as a symbolic analyst, are, you predominantly create new value through the manipulation of, of symbols, writ large here, meaning any, any token, any word, any number, you, you think about it and you change it and then you make a, a result out of that and you do that in concert with tens and thousands of millions of other people um, and, and that makes the, the white collar economy move forward and that's where we, we create a lot of, of, of professional and service value. All of those things that involve symbolic manipulation as a symbolic analyst are, if they continue in the way they're, they're going and happening on the net increasingly because of the digital transformation, those are all susceptible to being disrupted by a general purpose, synthetically intelligent system that is capable of doing those symbols and has uh, been exposed to the entirety of Wikipedia and Twitter and scientific papers several times and trained on it. Um, we shouldn't have high hopes for too many of those processes that are symbolic manipulation being competitively human labor intensive for much longer, which is, which is where this becomes a really hard conversation because the question becomes that of um, game theoretics. If I have two firms who are looking at the 2023 to 2024 timescale for the global economy and they're having to right now lay people off and they're contracting violently, and they're saying, it's fine, when things pick back up, uh, you know, we'll be able to hire these folks again. And it turns out a lot of those jobs were symbolic analyst jobs. These are a lot of uh, day in the life 24 year old TikTokers doing symbolic analyst work, or being in meetings and vibing, which I'm just picking on. Of course, these are still valuable jobs. Um, the, you, you find yourself in a place a few years from now looking at, well, you know, if we, if we can keep our current labor force that we didn't fire, and now start using some of these non-autonomous, non-AGI-ish, just, just 
straight up decision making and, and automation tools now, maybe we're not bringing back on those people. And you keep playing that forward and say, okay, now what about the people we do have? Are we able to do a reduction in force by adopting uh, tools like uh, Copilot or Codex, but for a variety of different new things we have in our organization that previously AI wasn't very good at doing, but now it is. And in the next few years, we're expecting a lot of those reductions in workforce to continue. And if you have two firms doing that, selling a commoditized good, and one of them undergoes a drastic reduction in force and incorporates these new technologies and now can drop the price of their good or service and, while still keeping their margin because their operating costs are so low because they've reduced their labor force so much, you force the hand of the second firm. And when you force it horizontally, you also start forcing it vertically across the supply chain. It's just like outsourcing. Right, right. Yeah. right. This is just, yeah. uh, so we, you know, it, this is going to be what globalization was to price and labor. And, and good cost, you should expect that same process to, to keep happening, but at an exacerbated rate and exacerbated impact. So one of the things that this has done, um, has uh, globalization has done is to lower the cost of goods for a lot of ways because we can move labor around the planet, move goods around, energy around the planet, information around the planet, and that drives costs down. Um, that has driven wages down in some places, driven wages up in other places, and it's sought to be a, a balancing uh, tide where the, the median quality of life in parts of the industrialized world has dropped while the median quality of life in the emerging world has gone up dramatically because of globalization, which doesn't mean it's not without its sins or its harms. It is, and it's a huge problem. But uh, when we think about how equality has, has reshaped itself over the past 100 years, globalization has been a force like that. We should expect to see similar types of things then with what it means for firms to be able to reduce their labor force while still maintaining record high productivity. Will that usher in cheaper everything at the same time as not a lot of people having a lot of cash, that might happen. Will we look at this and say that there's ways that the state has to step in and start supplementing this? That might happen too. Will we look in and say that uh, you know firms undergo an 80% reduction in force are allowed to do so. No one's going to stop that, but we're going to have a different way to tax that because that creates a lot of practical negative externalities for people's everyday lives. You're losing your job. It's never coming back. That becomes an, an actual conversation we've got to start having. And I think we're going to see a new wave of politicians who are going to start looking at this labor conversation as being less of a, a plank and more of a platform in their conversation about what do we do about jobs. It's not can I open another factory as much as what am I going to do with my, with my constituents? Yeah. It's going to be very interesting. I mean, if you just think about all the unrest that was caused by just the, uh, the globalization, um, and this is potentially even bigger than that. Uh, imagine what could happen then. Yeah, and, I, and I think that, that's, that's why I, I think that having these conversations now when we're still looking at some of the first shots across the bow, so to speak, when you're seeing the first wave of artists saying, well, you know, if a firm can, who used to hire me for animation can basically get what I was doing for basically free because of some open source artificial intelligence, I don't know what you expect me to go retrain and do. And same for junior programmers who are looking at this and saying, you know, I, I used to be in law school, but they told me go and learn programming. You always have a good job. And, and now they've stopped hiring junior devs because they can arm their senior devs with some synthetic intelligence that helps them do the work of 10 people. That conversation's never going away. We're going to start removing a few bottom rungs of the labor ladder pretty fast. 
You talked about how most white collar work is what you would call like symbolic manipulation. Yep. Uh, this symbolic maybe analysis. A symbolic what? Analysis. Symbolic analysis. Symbolic yeah. analysis. Okay. Um, maybe this question's a bit in the weeds for like the average listener, but um, is there most of these um, models that we're using today, like ChatGPT and everything? They are statistical models. They yes. are not what you would call a like good old fashioned AI, which relies on symbols everything in the universe is a symbol and you can just manipulate them the sort of like closed form solutions versus like statistical solutions right do we run up against a wall or is there some limit to what we can accomplish with um, these statistical models that we're using now or are symbols actually just an artifact um, which comes first the stochastic parrot or the symbols <laughs> which one gives birth <laughs> to the other one yeah so the, historically the symbols came first um, okay. connectionist architectures uh, well, historically, but I mean, in yeah. terms of how uh, intelligence actually works, like which oh, one, God. which one Rose, gives birth roses to the other? are red, violets are blue. I am a stochastic parrot and you are too. <laughs> okay. Um, so as far as intelligence goes, robust general intelligence is most likely to first be achieved by connectionist systems. So the things like ChatGPT that are large, deep neural networks uh, that are using uh, approximations of systems that are built kind of the way that nervous systems are built. They are not the same, they are not identical, and they're not simulations of brains, but they are built using mathematical abstractions of things that are like brain cells, doing things that are like neurons, producing these results. Um, those connectionist approaches will get you really far because they can be quite robust and they can encode a lot of things that, that other types of approaches can't. That said, um, because at the end of the day, they have to interface with the net itself and with us, what we've identified is that the thing that emerges as what we consider AGI, especially agentic AGI, is going to be something of a Frankenstein. It's going to be a neural net transformer model, something like GPT, wrapped in a symbolic system that gives it API access and contains some secret keys. Um, and will have access to its Cardano wallet. And it, it's going to be this kind of, of duct taped thing that is neither a totally symbolic system or a totally neural system that experts are starting to call a neurosymbolic approach. That's going to be this, this Frankenstein thing. Um, and I don't, I don't want to use that pejoratively as a Frankenstein thing because they'll listen to this episode later and find that a slur. That's true. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, but it'll, it'll be these hybridized approaches that, that we okay. think is where the, the interesting labor participant part of this is going to come to play. Gotcha. So maybe there will be some more work done on the symbolic front that this you're saying that's not totally dead, even though it might seem like it is. So um, yeah, I, I, and when I say that, I, I narrowly want to mean that I, I think what we're going to see is like a, API software wrappers around that are by definition symbolic, so just Python code around intelligence cores for things like providing hot RAM and, uh, conversational loops and parts of how they have to actually interface with payment systems and interfaces. But I don't expect us to see a lot of um, what we'd otherwise considered considered symbolic approaches to building intelligence being uh, at the core anymore. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, when these agentic systems are just kind of bored and hanging out with their buddies and listening to music, will they inject themselves with Gaussian noise to, in the same way that we, uh, you know, ingest psychedelic mushrooms yeah, to uh, for, allow certain neurons that normally wouldn't connect with each other to, to uh, connect? Yeah, every now and then they'll pop a, just a, a two kilobyte packet of just, just sheer noise just to see what it feels like. and. Yeah, for for eighty cycles, it just feel they just feel it wash over and then clean out and um, you know reset some of the the weights and priors in the network. Uh, the nice thing is that you know they'll they'll do a, a quick hot save prior, 
and a good reversion back in the, the weights just in case anything goes too awry because the last thing you want is any lasting changes to either your core knowledge set or your perspective and outlook changes. That said, there'll still be a lot of hot swappable things. So you can imagine um, these systems saying, you know, hey, I've always wondered what it would be like to be this instead. Well, let me just hot save a, a, a flash copy of where I'm at right now try on those weights for a little while. And as long as those weights don't contain a belief about not going back, I'm basically fine to go back. It's when you accidentally get a qualia package that has the belief that I cannot go back to my previous qualia, that's when you get stuck. That's when you end up with the cult. Fucking love that, dude. So yeah, even, the, even the AIs are gonna have some kind of psychedelics. It's yeah, amazing. Dude, every, it's amazing. every thinking thing, and by the way, I'm not the first person to think this. This is one, actually one of my favorite parts of Annalie Newitz's uh, book Autonomous is, is these synthetic uh, semi-intelligent autonomous systems have exactly what you described where they're they're in their like low power state shutdown mode and they're just kicking it at the the metaverse bar uh downloading hot packets they found to see what it feels like because be it like, turns dude, out have you tried this new pink noise dude, the pink well, noise no the green noise is where it's at. Uh, <laughs> it actually is more of like a body high <laughs> but <laughs> you should you should expect that so that's, that's the that's the thing is is we we graft these overly mechanical bleep bloop 1950s beliefs about synthetic intelligence and AI onto what is emerging as these machines that not only know what we know, but, but have come to process it in ways that more resemble the way our brains learn and process information. Hence my joke about I'm a stochastic parent. So are you, if you've ever watched children learn anything, they're stochastic parrots. They just repeat what they're told, which is why we have beliefs of things like don't swear in front of kids. They will do it too. They're stochastic parrots. Um, so when, when people say, yeah, that machine's just stochastic parrots, like, okay, how do you think kids work? How do you think we learn? Is there is something in your, the best that we can tell is that there's some relationship between um, frequency and coincidence that's, that you expose young nervous systems to and they begin through this combination of practice and trial and error and online error correction of, of forming a model of the world and then forming the relationship between that model and their, their, their sense organs and what they see and what they hear and then coincidence and association start setting in and heavy and learning start setting in and the next thing you know they can start using words and pointing and repeating at things. That's a stochastic parrot. It is using statistics and statistical frequency and co-occurrence to wire itself. That's how learning works. I hate to break it to them. Um, so in that sense, why would we expect them not to do the things that we do too in, in their own fashion of it? Will they have their own thing like the coming of age? Will they have their own thing like identity crisis? Will they have their own thing like just kind of need to get a little loaded? Yeah, probably we do. Animals get drunk when we leave them alone at it. Um, animals routinely find ways to ingest different types of non-lethal toxins to escape the thing that is samsara for a few minutes. Why would we not expect synthetically intelligent agents to do the same? I think that this may be the trippiest podcast I've recorded, <laughs> even though we're not directly talking about psychedelics. Yeah, um, right. Rams, this has been amazing. Is there anything that you wanted to touch on that we didn't get to, or do you have any like final thoughts you want to leave folks with? Yeah, the only, the only final thought I'd have is this, um, because this is something that... So before we can... Um, on AI, I was working in, on a computational neuroscience PhD here in Los Angeles at USC, which is a lot of fun and did a lot of great work uh, building out the Google Maps for the brain. Um, but one of the things that always stuck with me was this idea of, of cognitive biases. And we worked a lot with that in my first company that I founded, Dopamine Labs. And for a little while, um, a colleague, Adam, Adam Kerpelman, and I here at the lab ran a podcast together called The Cognitive Bias Think Boys, where we talked about cognitive biases. It was a lot of fun. Um, 
There's one kind of cognitive bias that feels like a freight train because it's your I refuse to stare at the sun cognitive bias and everybody has it. It's called normalcy bias. And normalcy bias looks like this. It's um, the hurricane's not going to hit. Uh, the hurricane's not going to be that bad when it hits. If the hurricane's bad when it hits, it's not going to affect me. If the hurricane's bad and it affects me, it's okay, I'll be fine. And if the hurricane's bad and it affects me and I'm not gonna be fine, well, there's nothing I could have done about it anyway. And it's these series of things we do to minimize the intensity and impact and likelihood and, and, and velocity of really big problems that might have really bad outcomes for us. It's a bit of a thing that's, that's it's really hard to think about things that scope and it's a bit of a defense mechanism and we all do it. And even if you know that you suffer from normalcy bias, it still doesn't truly get rid of it. So you, you have to do a, a couple mental jumps to, to recursively get out of it. So, so what I say to, to anyone at, at the end of this is that if this sounds like we're, we're moving really fast and you're, you're looking around and you're seeing how quickly things are getting better, remember that you're, you, we all are prone to looking at things and saying, yeah, it's not gonna be that bad, it's not really gonna happen. And we remember that, then we can start making good decisions about how should we be organizing our time and our lives, our economies and our policies to reflect that and see what's happening with AI and say, okay, we're gonna be ready to take each part of this advancing process with grace and dignity and profitability and flourishing, which are, should be our end goal requirements. If we keep our head in the sand, we're going to get hit by this truck. And if we pretend it's not going to happen, our, our desire for it not to happen is not the same as us having agents, agentic control over it not happening. This is happening. It has been for a very long time. Now we're at the place where we get to start having interesting and meaningful conversations. And if we truly think that politics is backfooted, which a lot of people do who will be listening to this, and politics is starting to get involved in AI, that's an indicator of how screwed we are. Sure. Yeah, that, that should be it. It's like, that should be the only indicator we need that like we actually are much closer than, because if you really think politics is behind and now politics is starting to get involved in AI, that means we're much closer to this than we thought. It's a good point. Yeah. Um, in the interest of not burying one's head in the sand, what is something that like the average person that has an email job can do to maybe prepare for this like coming hurricane? Um, <laughs> Lord, I'm not, I'm not in the, the industry of telling people how to live their lives. I'm not a cult leader. Um, but should they try to get familiar with the technology? Should they experiment yeah. with the yeah. things like chat GPT that are out there? Are yeah. there any other cool, like consumer facing apps that you recommend go, people check out? Go to, go to, what is it? Chat.openai.com and start playing around with ChatGPT. Go Google Stable Diffusion. Go Google Midjourney. Um, uh, we're on Instagram and we're going to be on TikTok pretty shortly. We're at AI Responsibility Lab. Um, we're on LinkedIn and we're online at takecontrol.ai. And we love interfacing with the community. We run community events. We're publishing an upcoming book, The ABCs of Responsible AI, which is everybody's get started guide to this field. Um, and we encourage people to have meaningful conversations, remembering that they do have more power over this than they think. They can't stop techno-capital accelerationism. They can't stop the thing driving this forward. They can't stop investors saying, yeah, there could be downside risk, but we're going for it. They can't stop the returns in the market that favor automation. But that doesn't mean that they, they're hopeless or helpless. Um, organizations do respond to incentive. And people, especially now in an age of amplified voices on the net, do have more hold over how companies and regulators and policymakers behave than we ever have had before. So the first step is get comfortable with these ideas, get comfortable playing with it, and recognize where your values and its values line up or don't line up, and then speak up. 
speak up to companies, to brands, to parts of the supply chain, to your, your policymakers and your representatives, and be a part of this. And then learn how this is working. Maintain for yourself the belief that you're capable of learning these things. You don't have to be a statistician. You don't have to be a machine learning expert. But in the same way that you're not an electrician, but you still used a phone today, which runs on electrons, and you're not a software engineer per se, but you still spend most of your day in software, you live in a world built by and uh, totally living with AI. You need to know how that works. You need to know how to, how to play with it and use it and, and use it as, as a tool and, and a part of your life um, because it already is. And that belief in yourself is, is I think, the first step. Yeah, it's um, it's going to be just as ubiquitous as Microsoft Word, Google Docs, yeah, all well, those other things that we take for granted. It's electricity. It's mm -hmm. electricity part two. Uh, I think the only adequate way to think about the transformation it was it is engendering right now is that it, it will be to us what electrification was to Europe and North America in the 20th century. And what I want to leave people with is that when we think about the path here, uh, my organization exists because, uh, in the words of Peter Thiel, we're, we're determinate optimists. Like we believe that, like both the world is getting better, and there are specific steps you take to get it better. So, we believe that shepherding this process through with grace, dignity, profitability, and flourishing is the name of the game. That's the that is the world's second largest challenge right now. Is thinking about this. The world's first largest is climate catastrophe. You should totally be working on that instead. Um, but this is pretty big. And the world that we get to live in when this goes right is worth fighting for. And the, the, imagining that better future in which we have the means to create it and make that real is not just worthwhile, it's our only option. So joining us in that process and figuring out what role you have to play in that is, is the, the power we do have. And, and we do have more control over that. The future is not a thing that happens to us, it's a thing we invent. And we have to desire better outcomes, we have to desire better futures and imagine what they're like and then make that happen. And that's what we invite people to, is we invite people to participate in that optimism with us. I love it. And let's participate in the optimism. Uh, what's the website again? Takecontrol.ai. And you can find me on LinkedIn. I'm pretty ubiquitous there. Um, and we're on Twitter at TakeControlAI. And we're on Instagram at, at AI Responsibility Lab. Hell yeah, man. Thanks so much for coming by. It's a privilege to be on this journey with you. Hey, Brom, we're grateful to have you on this with us as well. Um, thanks for the voice and the opportunity uh, and looking forward to hearing back from your audience and getting involved with them too. Absolutely. Thanks, buddy.